Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests with tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. In this episode, our expert guest, Andrea from Taste Bologna Food Tours, reminisces about some of his favorite Bolognese food experiences. Because I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother started to boil the meat when it was 6 a.m. She take the broth out of the pan and then she cooked the tortellini with that broth. So it was a full lunch, but all started from the same pan. Can you start a second business called Adopter Grandma? <laughs> and we'll just come and hang out with Italian grandmas all day. We discuss what goes into making one of the most famous pork products in the world. This pork's getting treated better than I would be at a five-star hotel by the sounds of it. It's getting a spa. Yeah, it is. It's it's spa-treated pork, pretty much. And it's lunch meat. Plus, only in Italy, a dessert made from tagliatelle. Pasta for a main course and pasta for dessert. Amazing. I think that uh, just Bolognese could think about putting a pasta on a dessert. (laughs) (laughs) If you think about it, it's really crazy. Hey everyone, welcome again to another episode of The Dish. And this is one of our What to Eat In episodes. So we're going to be talking about quite a few different dishes, some of the histories behind each one. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy, of which Bologna is the capital. And I mean, everyone loves Italy, right? Uh, Especially this region, because these guys invented tagliatelle, tortellini, tortelloni. If you don't know what that is, we're going to be talking about that. It's another form of stuffed pasta. And they are the home of Parmigiano-Reggiano. Cheese! Parmesan cheese the for king, those English listeners. The king of cheese. If yes. you ask any, anyone from that region, it is the king. There are no cheeses above it, only cheeses below. This, this is also the home region of Parma ham, which is another amazing, oh, fantastic, world-famous product. Melts in your mouth. Only comes from this region. We'll be talking about why a little bit later on. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to explore some of our favorite must-try dishes from Bologna. And as that's the capital of Armenia, Romania, it's sort of the place where you can come and get a little bit of everything. Not absolutely everything, but almost everything is represented. You will be full. You will be full. So, you know, if there's something that you can't actually find, it doesn't matter because you're going to be full. Also, we'll be talking about a specific local wine that foreigners have been misunderstanding for years, but actually they're really missing out on. And when you come to Bologna, you have to drink it. So that's it. That's this episode. Lots of great Italian food from the Emilia-Romagna region. So before we kick into actual dishes, as is customary with our What to Eat in episodes, we want to cover some of the essential ingredients from this region that make a real difference, that make people go, ooh, ah, it's that sort of food. I recognize this because it's from that region and it makes you, it like transports you back there if you have it anywhere else in the world. It tastes like Emilia-Romagna. Yeah. So, yes, as well as basic ingredients that you'll find everywhere, like eggs, flour, tomatoes, tomato paste. I mean, we find them all over the world. They're so yellow. Yeah, I have to say they do have some great corn-fed eggs. And one of the reasons the pasta is so unbelievably yellow is because those egg yolks are so orange. It makes the pasta go yellow. So you think even eggs are basic ingredients, but they're not. They're super special just from that region. It's cray. But there are some extra special ingredients specifically from here that we really need to talk about. So let's get on to probably, this is not just an ingredient, this is also technically a dish, and it's Bologna's most famous export that's specifically from the city. It's called mortadella, and I think you've got some really cool information on this one, right? Yeah, so mortadella is something that you've probably heard of. If, if you are American, you've probably heard of Bologna. But it's called bologna in America. Or bologna, yeah. So which is actually the name that came because it's the, it's the sausage meat from Bologna. Put two and two together. There you go. I think everyone's got this picture together. (laughs) All right. Okay. So essentially, yeah, it's a large sausage or a luncheon meat that is made of finely ground heat cured pork. They're very particular with the way they make their pork. It incorporates small cubes of pork fat. And this is the really important part because if you see a mortadella, it's very, very pink and it has these squares of white in it. And that is pure pork fat that actually it comes from the neck 
in particular. That's where they get it from because this particular fat from the neck is considered to be the hardest and the most exquisite among the fatty tissues of the pig. And if you're getting a mortadella, which is a bologna that's not made in Bologna, it's not necessarily going to have those. This is something I saw that the American ones, there's no regulation about having these little dots of fat. No, no. So it is something that can help you tell whether it's a good quality one or not. Mortadella, it's a protected geographical product. Yeah, it has to be made in in certain areas in order for it to be considered to be mortadella. But bologna in general is this sort of just lunch and meat thing that you can make anywhere. Sort of, it follows some of the same things, but it's not mortadella. No, It's not the real thing. It's a cheap imitation. Yes, exactly. So yeah, they've got their sausage, they've got their pork meat with the fatty little cubes in it, and then they add some spices to it. So you'd be looking at like whole ground black pepper, myrtle berries, maybe some pistachios, that sort of stuff that all goes in there as well. The meat is bagged and then it's cooked in air dry heaters. And they keep them in this special sealed container for like a few hours or up to like a full day. It really depends on the size of the sausage that they're making. So there's like a giant, giant sausage, which will take like two days to cook. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Some serious slow cooking process going on there. Yeah, they want it to be just perfect. Because when you do get to the end and you got that really thin slice that they cut in Bologna, it literally does disintegrate on your mouth. Oh, it's beautiful. It's like velvet. It's like velvet pork. Yeah, you can't believe it. It has to be cut really, really thin for that to work. But when it is, just like, whoa. Yeah. How? And it's because they do this whole air dry heaters business and they do that for like a day or so. And then they cold shower it with water, which stabilizes like the cells inside it. This pork's getting treated better than I would be at a five-star hotel by the sounds of it. It's getting a spa. Yeah, it is. It's it's spa treated pork pretty much. And it's lunch meat. Let's be honest here. The cheap variety in America may be lunch meat. Bologna may be lunch meat. This is not just lunch meat. No, if you it have is it high right. quality, delicious, region specific ham that yes, you can have for lunch, but it's not just a cheap lunch meat you send the kids off with. No. Although I'm sure the kids who are getting that because they grew up in Bologna, they're very happy about their lunch sandwiches. <laughs> well, they don't even really appreciate it because they're like, oh, mortadella again. <laughs> and the rest of us would be like dying to have that for lunch every day. Uh, but the interesting thing that I found out was actually that mortadella is a really old meat. Not the meat itself. It's not that they're not using old meat. It in itself, in its production process, the making of it is really old. And history actually shows that it could date back to the days of ancient Rome. Mm. That far back. Which is really crazy. Ancient Bologna. Specifically. Yes. So there's two different theories on this. So one theory is that the name mortadella comes from the Latin term mortarium, and that's the mortar used in the past to press the pork's meat. It's like a heavy weight that pushed on the pork to form it into a sausage thing or something? Something or? like that. I didn't see any diagrams or anything, <laughs> but yeah. Don't need diagrams on a podcast. No, exactly. Yeah. So there's another hypothesis that states that the origin of the name could be linked to the word mortarum, not mortarium, mortarum. Almost the same, but sure. Uh, Which is a traditional sausage scented with myrtle, which was actually a popular spice before the introduction of pepper in in Europe. So myrtle was quite often used instead of pepper. And so they think that the mortadella that you know today generally has black pepper in it. And often myrtle. In fact, I think that's an important ingredient that they include. Yes. So it could be that tradition has gone on that long that it's still being done. Yeah. But actual mortadella as we know it today in Bologna originally appeared in a document in the 16th century. So that's the first official recording. So yeah, wishy-washy history, but officially recorded in the 16th century. And as of 1998, as we were discussing before, it has a protected geographical indication, which means that only genuine mortadella can come from Bologna and a couple of the surrounding regions. Because of microclimates and stuff like that, and we'll uh, we'll probably mention this as we go through, but if you didn't know already, there's this whole bunch of different places in Europe that have a specific this climate happens here, this happens here, the pork that grows here is different from the pork that is reared elsewhere, so it's protected. If you make it somewhere else, it's not going to taste exactly the same, so you can't make it anywhere else. These EU regulations are pretty crazy, but they also mean that you get a very high-quality product. It which preserves is awesome. the authenticity of the product. Simple as that. Exactly. Now, 
Did you have anything else on this? I just have a couple of kooky facts, but most of them actually sort of refer to the American version because it's actually, you think it's really popular in Bologna, but it's really popular. The bologna sort of similar version is very popular in America to the point where they actually eat 800 million pounds of it every year. Wow. I didn't know it was that popular. I have to say, I'm not a fan of bologna. I, I had tried it before and then when i went to bologna i was like oh no i get it but before that i was like this stuff is crap <laughs> the, the low quality stuff is not good at all yeah but uh, americans love it and they eat 800 million pounds of it every year so that's 363 million kilos it, to the point where they actually have a national bologna day which is the 24th of october so if you are listening to this podcast and it is the 24th of october go out and eat some bologna or if you're in Emilia-Romagna, go stuff your face full of mortadella. Yep, get the real thing. I'm pretty sure it's a lot better. There is also a festival for mortadella in Emilia-Romagna, in Bologna itself. Uh, it is held in September and it's called Mortadella, Please. <laughs> I don't know if it has the sass on it, but I think if there's please at the end, you've got to put some sass on it. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm sure it does. Uh, you should have- go host it. <laughs> Just, so this is how you host a mortadella event, people. Please. Uh, so there's stalls, cooking demonstrations, entertainment, and more, all for this festival that's held in September. I couldn't see any dates for 2018, but it was still held in 2017, 2016. So sometimes it takes, you know, Italians. They don't need to advertise that Italian stuff in time. They'll, you know, they'll just turn up and they'll update the Facebook page when they get to it. It's probably going to sell out even if they release the tickets a day before. That's the thing. So, exactly. You know, what are you going to do? All right, so Crazy Mortadella, one of the most important products from Bologna. There's lots of other products from the Emilia-Romagna region that are used in Bologna in everything. So I think we need just a little quick lightning round for some of the ones that are really specific to this area. Parmigiano-Reggiano, which is Parmesan cheese to the uh, common English person. It's possibly the most famous cheese in the world. Let's face it, everyone's had this on their pasta at some point. Parmigiano-Reggiano is a protected product, just like mortadella, which can only be made, though, specifically in the province of Parma and the province of Reggio Emilia and Bologna, but specifically areas that are west of the River Reno, Modena and Mantua, but only areas south of the River Po. That river's pretty important. It's really specific. This is what I'm talking about. These protected regions. It's just like, oh, no, that side of the river. No, no, the breeze is going the wrong way. So, no, you can't make it there. We need the breeze going that way so that the the steam and the mist is carried off the river into the cellar and makes it mature with these specific bacteria. The other way. No, 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 not that way. This way, only this way. These rules get so specific that it even comes down to the bacteria that is present in the grass that the cows eat for the milk that they make that then makes the cheese because that milk will be different from other milk from different cows eating different grass. Well, the cows have to come from that region too. You can't just ship in any old cow. Well, you have to have the cows that are in that region. They have to be eating the grass in that region. It's insane. So, yeah, obviously, you probably had Parmigiano Reggiano before. This intense, hard and crumbly cheese has actually been produced in this region probably for at least 900 years. It originally might have been produced by monks who just figured out that they could make this type of cheese with a process similar to today. And we're going to do a full episode on Parmigiano cheese in our bonus area for our patron subscribers in the future. So uh, look out for that. Right now, we're not going to talk any more about it. We're going to move on to the next ingredient. Parma ham or prosciutto crudo di Parma. So that is another world famous export from the region. Parma ham is a raw ham that is cured with salt and it's aged for at least 12 months, sometimes even as long as three years or more. And this process of preserving the ham has existed in Italy for at least 2,000 years. Although cured ham can really be made anywhere. You know, you have your jamón and in different Spain and different regions are doing their cured ham. But prosciutto di Parma can only be made in the province of Parma. And as we were talking about before with the cheese, the unique microclimate of the region affects the way the ham ages and the flavors of the ham as well. That's what helps it develop, which is absolutely crazy, but it's how they do it. Even to the point where they open the windows and close the windows in ham factories at certain times to let the air in if the air is at exactly the right quality that they want to age the ham on that particular stage of aging the ham. It's insane how organized they are with this stuff. 
All right, next up, white and black truffles. Yes, Bologna is a truffle region, and the hills around Bologna and Emilia-Romagna are home to some of those most prized, amazing truffles. The black truffles are hunted from March to November, and the more lucrative white truffle can only be found during October and November. Balsamic vinegar. Yes, balsamic vinegar originates in Emilia-Romagna, specifically in the regions of Modena and Reggio Emilia. So, in fact, balsamic vinegar was barely known outside of this region until about 1046, which, I mean, really, it's what? That's quite a while. That's quite a while. But when it comes to Italian food, really, it's, you know, that was very secret for a very long time. And uh, the first reference of it to be recorded was when the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III, visited the area. They were like, hey, Pope, Popey, try my, try my vinegar. And he was like, hey, that's good. So the difference between high-end aged balsamic and the cheap crap you get in the supermarkets at your local store, it's like night and day. And But we're going to be talking more about balsamic vinegar in a bonus episode that's going to be coming very soon. There is so much more to this vinegar than just something you put on your salad. Trust me. Yep. So that'll be another one of our bonus patron-only episodes. You can learn all about the history of balsamic vinegar by joining our Patreon account foodfuntravel.com slash extras you can join it from $1.50 a month and that episode will be coming very soon those are some of the most famous and important ingredients and they use those in everything all over the place like you, these ingredients will crop up in things that you never had any idea they would be in so we're going to be talking about that as we move through this episode but before we talk about some specific dishes let's instead talk about a specific dining style now, this is something we first learned about in Bologna, and I haven't researched it. Makes another research, so I don't know. Was it invented in Bologna? Was it invented somewhere else in Italy? It's this amazing Italian tradition called aperitivo, and it's like the backpacker's best friend because you get a ton of food for like five euros. It's like a pre-dinner meal. You buy one drink for a little bit over the regular cost, and you get this huge buffet for free, and you can just feast for an hour. Yeah. So what's the aperitivo story? So the aperitivo is actually much more popular in the north than it is in the south. Back many years ago, you probably wouldn't have actually found it in the south, but it's something that's actually spreading and you'll find it more in Rome and Naples and a few of those other places. Can't get enough of a good thing. No, I mean, exactly. This is like the most affordable so meal. Apparently those from the north will scoff at the south's attempt to do aperitivo <laughs> in a fine manner. But, but we're talking like they throw out big plates full of salamis, sometimes palm ham even, mortadella. Like you can try all of these different products that come from the region, as well as maybe some cheaper things. Like they try to throw cheaper things in, but you do get the good stuff in there as well. And it's going to cost you like four or five euros to have a whole meal and a drink. Yeah. So essentially aperitivo or aperitif is kind of described by most Italians as like the Italian happy hour, but you don't actually get a discount on your drinks. Like you said before, you might pay a supplement. You might pay a supplement for the drink, but you do have access to their full food buffet, which usually runs from about seven till about nine p.m. And this, surprisingly enough, is actually considered a snack to get you ready for dinner. So while it can be yes, a backpacker's best friend, and you can just eat to your heart's content, the true way to do aperitivo is to actually have some drinks have some snacks, and get yourself ready for dinner. And I, will, and I am going to explain how this actually works right now. All right. It's very hard for me to go into a free buffet full of amazing things like mortadella and parma ham and not just eat everything. I know. So how does it work? Because I can't conceive how I could possibly not eat everything. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the very beginning of when it's thought that this started. So back in 1786. Wow. So this is actually quite an old tradition. Yes, it is. Amazing. Uh, this is when Antonio Benedito Carpaño invented vermouth. Okay. And he invented that in Turin uh, back then, and he claimed that his special combination of fortified wine and various herbs and spices stimulated the appetite. He also claimed, and I have no idea where this claim came, comes from, it sounds like bunkum, uh, he claimed that it was more suitable for ladies to drink than red wine. Really? Sounds like marketing to me, but sure. I know, and that's the whole thing. So, as we all know, there have been drinks around since the dawn of time that have been said to have digestive qualities. He's not the first guy to invent something that's meant to, you know, digest your food or get you ready for a meal. But yeah, as we just said, it turns out that he was the king of marketing spin and vermouth took off. And uh, it was something that was really popular to have in Milan, the north of Italy, and they would pair the vermouth with salty snacks. To make you drink more. 
Generally, it is to make you drink That's the more. original reason for free food was always to make you drink more, right? It always is. Now, apparently in Milan, they're very, very fussy about their peritivo. They take it very seriously. And they might actually tell you that it was Campari who invented the aperitivo and not Carpaño. So it's the, it's the ultimate battle between Campari and Vermouth. Well, I hate Campari, so I'm going to take the vermouth on this one. All right, fair enough. But either way, history-wise, what we do know is that the term comes from the Latin word for opener. So, aperitivo is the Latin word for opener. So, signifying that it was to open a meal. Traditionally, aperitivo cocktails, they tended to be bitter on taste, like your vermouth, your Negroni, your Prosecco, that sort of stuff. And it paired perfectly, as I just said, with your salty snacks. Oh, yeah. And that's how they paired them up. And so it was like this bitter drink that had these herbs in it that was meant to open the stomach and prepare you for the meal to come. These days, of course, it's not just those bitter drinks that are consumed during aperitivo. You can have wine, you can have a nice cocktail, and the snacks, as we were just discussing, can be anything from nice cheeses to cured meats to slices of pizza, little pastas, quiches. You know, there's a lot of variety that you have in these snacks that is aperitivo. And if you're at a student place, it's basically big pieces of bread with a bit of cheese on them. Or tomato. Because the student aperitivos, they know everyone coming in is just going to feast and not snack. And they eat everything. So it's like the cheapest food. But still, you can get fed for under five euros, which Absolutely. is amazing. Yeah, it's a really great option for people to just go and have. You know, it's, it's never usually like top-notch quality food. But if you're on a budget, it's food. Yeah. And if you go to the slightly fancier aperitivos and maybe you're paying seven euros per person, some of those do have some really nice buffet stuff out. So yeah, they're like, our customers are not just going to eat everything. So we'll put out some better stuff, but you can still go and eat everything. Exactly. And yeah, I think it might seem like a really weird concept that getting ready to go out for dinner involves snacking, but the Italians have a strong tradition of believing that the appetite comes when you eat. They do eat a lot more than yeah, I do. So what can I, guess. I say? Italians know eating. So I'll just follow their lead on this one. Okay, so if you don't fill up on aperitivo, and I recommend you don't do it every day, not in a full feasting way. Maybe do it once as a feast and then otherwise... you too much other good food to enjoy. So much good food, especially if you've only got a few days in Bologna. Do the aperitivo once and then make sure you leave yourself some space to go and try some of the other amazing dishes. Now, let's talk about the most famous Bolognese dish. Now, this one's a bit controversial. Spaghetti Bolognese. It's not called Spaghetti Bolognese. Don't you dare say that in front of someone from Bologna. They might slap you across the face. Yes, Bologna's... Kick you out of their town. I don't want to be kicked out. I like the food. I want to stay. So Bologna's most famous dish is something that needs an entire episode, but... uh, And we're going to do that. There'll be an entire episode on Spaghetti Bolognese, which is not what it's called. But some basic knowledge about this quintessential dish is needed before we can talk about other Bolognese dishes throughout this episode. So in Bologna, if you ask for spaghetti bolognese, you are actually going to be served spaghetti in a tuna and tomato sauce. Not what you'd be expecting at all. Not what you'd think from being a student in England or America making your spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> oh yeah, I survived on that. <laughs> yeah, everyone did. So no, this will be tuna and tomato sauce. It will not have any ground beef in it or any meat at all. Uh, If you're a foreigner, though, you do have the opportunity that perhaps a waiter will educate you on what the dish you think you're ordering is actually called, which varies between tagliatelle ragu or tagliatelle alla bolognese or bolognese. I can't pronounce it You've got to get the inflection right. Bolognese. No, still can't get it right. So uh, that's the difference. There is no spaghetti. They simply don't use spaghetti with a ragu-style meat sauce in Bologna. Why is that? Because the ragu is made with stock and tomato paste, not a big old can of tomatoes like we used to make when we were students. That's the difference. And this is the original bolognese, and it's with tagliatelle. So a true bolognese ragu contains a rich, meaty liquid. And if you put that on spaghetti, then you're going to get all these little bits of meat that just stick on the top of this pile of spaghetti and a puddle of broth at the bottom. So by using fresh tagliatelle, the liquid actually sticks to that pasta, the thick, rich, sticky pasta. And that means every single bite, 
you get a rich, full mouthful of every part of the dish. And you will really notice this if you are in Emilia-Romagna. The spaghetti that you are used to, the packet spaghetti, the dried spaghetti, is really something that comes from the south. They have different winds down there that allows them to really quickly dry their pasta. And it's a style that they do down in the south of Italy. But in the north, it's fresh pasta all the way. They're sticky fresh, and that's what the ragu sticks to. And it's yum, 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 yum. Exactly. Now, this dish does have tomato in it, but normally it's tomato paste. They don't use fresh tomatoes. So it used to be before they had tomatoes, or so I've been told, that um, they made it without tomatoes. So this, so this is, is an old dish. this is pre-Mexican you know, conquistadors. Ragu, not surprisingly, as a dish. Also, they have ragu in France. They're different, but they are both the same sort of cooking style. But we're going to get into that in the full episode on spaghetti bolognese, mm-hmm. tagliatelle ragu. For that one. So why has spaghetti bolognese become a world-famous dish? Well, that's exactly what we're going to cover in the other episode. For now, what you need to know is that ragu which is based on stock and tomato paste, slow cooked with other ingredients, is a really important part of the cuisine. They use it in other dishes. It's not just used in this particular dish of tagliatelle ragu. So that's why we needed to bring it up. So look out for that episode that's coming in season two. Going to do a full breakdown on why spaghetti bolognese became the world famous dish rather than the original. So, still to come in this episode, the fresh egg pastas of Bologna, including a special type of pasta, which is made with breadcrumbs. Plus, our favourite Bolognese dish is one that is mostly unknown outside of Bologna and managed to win our hearts over Bologna's most famous dishes. Fresh pasta is literally one of the most important things you've got to think about when you're going to come to Bologna. That's one of their most important foods, one of their most important dishes. So let's talk about probably their most famous fresh pasta after the tagliatelle ragu. It's tortellini and it's big sister tortelloni. What's the difference and what is this all about? Well, we actually hooked up with our friend Andrea, who runs food tours in Bologna, to ask him a little bit about Bolognese cuisine. Hi, everybody who's listening. <laughs> this is Andrea speaking. I'm uh, the owner of uh, Taste Bologna. I organize uh, food tours and cooking classes here in, uh, in Bologna and Modern. Bologna is the city where uh, I've, uh, I was born and I grew up, actually in a, a small village uh, in the countryside. So my friend uh, used to tell me that I'm a countryman. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, my grandfather uh, was a butcher. My grandmother had a grocery shop. So first up, we talk about two of our top pasta dishes, though apparently one of them is actually a soup, not a pasta, he claims. So a pasta that's actually a soup. What is this about? Let's chat a little bit more about tortellini and tortelloni. Tortellini and tortelloni. Uh-huh. Now, this is another thing where we knew there were big ones and small ones, but we didn't know that the name was so similar. It's almost the same. We really call them big tortellini and little tortellini. <laughs> yeah. So, that's very funny. <laughs> So what is the difference between these two? And these are obviously very classic dishes from this region specifically. Yeah, both of them. There are three main uh, differences between uh, the, the two. The first, tortellini is a soup, tortelloni is uh, a pasta. So you cook tortellini in meat broth and you eat them with a spoon. You cook tortelloni in boiled and salted water and you eat them as a pasta. Second difference this uh, the filling. The filling for tortellini is uh, meat with pork loin, mortadella, parmesan cheese, nutmeg and salt. For tortelloni, here in Bologna, usually ricotta cheese and parsley. In Modena, they put uh, spinach. In Ferrara, they put uh, pumpkin and amaretto. And the third difference is the size. Tortellini are very small. They can stay like eight in a spoon. Tortelloni are... Uh, are big that you have to cut it with a with a fork. So the, the name is uh, really similar, and so big tortellini <laughs> sounds really good, but uh, there are two very different uh, kind of pasta. Okay, we're off to a pretty strong start on the pasta front because both of these dishes are amazing. Yeah, I am an absolute pasta fiend, and I can eat these both until the cows come home. If until I don't know the Italians come home and take it away from me. The rich meaty pasta of tortellini, like every single little bite, even though they're tiny, they're just little salt bombs. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And they actually use like the mortadella. They use the proper pork. Like they use really prime 
ingredients to make these that that's why they're so incredible i had no idea that tortellini had mortadella in it and parma ham and parmigiano reggiano yeah so it's basically three of the most important ingredients from that region are what make tortellini taste so good um so tortellini is probably one of the most famous stuffed fresh pastas not just from bologna but maybe in the world it's probably one of the most famous words for a stuffed pasta at least yeah i think a lot of people sort of just take every every sort of like pocket pasta like like you either call it ravioli or tortellini yeah like and everything actually they've all got different names well, they've all got different names <laughs> we are so, so ignorant names. in the, the english speaking nations yeah. we don't understand what they mean pretty much up until like the last you know 34 years of my life i've been calling them ravioli or tortellini yeah that's it that's it <laughs> But of course, all right, so let's talk about the tortellini. The word tortellini is derived from the Italian word torta, which means pie in Italian, of course. And so the letters ini at the end mean ini, as in teeny, teeny tiny. So it actually does mean that. So tortellini is actually classed as a sort of very tiny pasta pie. Because it's a yeah. you know, it's a stuffed dough. So I'll yeah, it's that. a bit like a pie. What's amazing is that this little pasta, of course, incorporates those three ingredients. That's fantastic. It's just the whole taste of Emilia Romagna in one little meat paste inside it really a pasta. Is. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, if you think that you've tried this dish, unless you've had it in Emilia Romagna, you you haven't had it. You've probably done it a little bit wrong. I don't think that the shops selling it in England are getting the meat mix quite right. No. They're just using whatever pork flavoring they can. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably wrong. This will rock your world. Yes. So the most popular way to eat the tortellini is en brodo, which means in broth, which will almost always be a beef broth. This leaves you with a perfect little porky salt bombs, but they're also drowned in this umami-driven liquid where every spoonful feeds the soul. That's a good way to describe it. It does. That's a really good way. It is pure happiness. You always want another spoonful. Yeah. When you finish the bowl, you're like, next, next bowl, like every time. So a little bit on the history of this. The shape of the tortellini, so legend said, oh, yes. was uh, inspired by the navel, the belly button of the goddess Venus. So it's said that she stayed at this inn close to Bologna and that the innkeeper spied on her through the keyhole. Dirty little bastard. Naughty innkeeper. Well, it's Venus, you know, I suppose. Well, you know, you want want to peek, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, upon seeing her perfect belly button through the keyhole, he was compelled to run to the kitchen and create a pasta in the same shape. Or at least that is the PG version of where he ran. (laughs) (laughs) To the kitchen. Let's stick with the kitchen. I don't want to know what he did. It's a food show, peeps. Yeah. All right. So, he ran to the kitchen and he went, all right, I'm going to make some tortellini. That's going to represent Venus's belly button. So. Undoubtedly, tortellini and brodo, uh, it's got to be on your bucket list, Re- regardless of everything else that you're eating. If you've only got one meal to eat when you're there, tagliatelle ragu and tortellini and brodo. Oh, 100%. That's two meals, so have both of those in the same meal. Well, as we said, once you finish the tortellini and brodo, you want more. So just be like, okay, no tortellini. No, you've ha- I've, I've had enough of you. It was glorious while it lasted, but now I must move on to another lover, and that will be the tagliatelle ragu. You can do it. Although the problem is that there's then a third wheel in this pasta triangle. Mm. Do triangles have wheels? Don't think that would work. It wouldn't go anywhere, would it? It wouldn't do so well. It'd be rubbish. That's why they don't make cars. Oh, no, they had three-wheel cars, but they were rubbish. They they just tip over. (laughs) Tip. So the big sister of tortellini is, of course, tortelloni. And the, the bolognese version of this, as Andrea mentioned in the clip, is with ricotta cheese and parsley. There you go. Vegetarians can rejoice. You can eat something in Emilia-Romagna. It's not just all meat. You can have some very, very tasty vegetarian options. Vegans, nah. sucks to be you. No, nah, never going to happen for vegans. The filling also, of course, includes the Parmigiano-Reggiano and normally nutmeg as well. Some people add a bit of lemon, but that's like the, the classic. I was very surprised with the amount of use of nutmeg. I think it's... Uh, now it's that I think about it, I'm hinted. like... Yes. It's hints of nutmeg. They don't go crazy with the nutmeg which is great. The tortelloni, which literally instead of ini, oni means like bigger. So it's not little, it's not little, it's bigger. Uh, it's normally served in a simple butter and sage dressing. And that's with, all it needs. Yeah, that's, that's all fine because the, the pasta's the star. It doesn't need a massive crazy sauce. But of course, you do want to put some extra parmigiano on the top. Well, of course. Yum, yum, yum. That is the rule for every single dish we're talking about. Always. It, always. Always. Extra parmigiano reggiano must be added to everything. This is why it's called king of cheese. Uh, sometimes, though, they do serve this in a salsa e burro, 
which is a butter sofrito. So it's uh, like onions, carrots, and celery fried up, and maybe a little bit of tomato and sage as well. So that's also an option. But literally, you just eat the pasta by itself. Oh, yeah. Tortelloni, amazing. Creamy, cheesy inside, savory, beautiful, fantastic. Beautiful. Uh, We were lucky enough to uh, create these amazing pastas with the legendary moniker at La Sfrolina. Sfrolina? Sfrolina, which is the the name of the ladies who make pasta. It literally means, and this is a crazy thing I've learned about Italian, uh, if it's got an E on the end or an A on the end, it changes it from singular to plural. So, Sfrolina, Sfrolina is because Monica has a sister and there's two ladies making the pasta at her shop and Sfrolina would be just one of them. And they're fantastic. So, if you have the opportunity to go in and meet both of them, oh, you will fall in love instantly. They are wonderful, wonderful people and so much fun to have around. And they just, they really love what they do. Monica has actually taught authentic pasta making classes to some very prestigious guests, including Nigella Lawson, Jamie Oliver, Rick Stein, Michael Portillo, who's an English politician who was very famous for a long time in England. And now, of course, to us, we are a part of her alumni, Tomo and Megzi from Food Fun Travel. There you go. It's good company there. And you'll have a fantastic time if you go and join a class with her. She's amazing. Like, I can't recommend it enough. One of the best cooking classes I've done in the world. But it's almost impossible to get in. So you're going to have to call her and basically beg for a spot because she has a tiny shop. She barely does any classes and it's going to be difficult. But hop on to Food Fun Travel and this the notes for this podcast, uh, foodfuntravel.com slash Bologna podcast, and you will be able to find out how you can get in contact with Monica and try and get yourself in that class. Book it in advance. If not, just to. turn up to the store and order some pasta. Like, Of course, you need to have a place that you can cook it. But you know, if, if last resort, if you can't get in for a cooking class, you have somewhere that you can buy her pasta and cook it. If you do yep. get in for a cooking class, make sure somewhere you have somewhere that you can cook it because you're going to go home with a lot of pasta. Yeah, she doesn't do any cooking at the actual pasta making class. Everything you make, you have to take home and cook. She just runs the shop. You can go in and buy her pasta or you can make your own if you're lucky enough to get a spot on the pasta making class. Anyway, yeah, so more information on that on the show notes. And also, of course, the dishes we've been talking about, there will be some notes about some of our favorite places to go eat them. So do check that out, foodfuntravel.com slash Bologna podcast. Right, so from famous pasta to a very unusual local pasta, it's actually a bit of a local secret. So Andrea joins us again to chat about one of his favorite bolognese dishes that most tourists miss. It's called passatelli. Passatelli, it's one of my favorite pasta in Bologna. I have to say passatelli soup because we have it also as a soup and that it's a leftover dish because it uses the old crusted bread that maybe you bought but last there. You grind it and you mix it with a Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, salt and eggs. You get this bowl, you put it into a press, and you get this uh, sort of spaghetti. That's what I call the real spaghetti bolognese, <laughs> because they look uh, a little bit like spaghetti, but they are cooked uh, or in meat broth and have it uh, as a soup, or in uh, as a pasta, so maybe with fish, uh, with uh, carbonara, you can have... Uh, it's a very simple but uh, amazing dish that I use uh, everything you have uh, left in the kitchen. So passatelli is a supremely salty and hearty leftovers dish, perfect for the winter. It's actually breadcrumb pasta, sort of strange, but it resembles this almost thick, furry-looking spaghetti. Yeah, it's really hard to explain, but... Andrea wasn't the only person to mention that this was his favorite dish. We asked quite a few people what their favorites were, and Passatelli kept coming up. And that's why we were like, whoa, what is this? We need to find it. And we were there in the summer, so actually it was a little tricky, but we did manage to track it down and try it. And it was as delicious as everyone explains it to be, but it really is a uh, a hearty, warm winter dish that you should enjoy while it's cold outside to, you know, warm your innards. Yeah, we found this at Trattoria Sangiovese in the south of Bologna City, south central. And uh, the notes for that, of course, are on the website. But yeah, it's the fact that like you've mixed the breadcrumbs with Parmigiano Reggiano once again. Mm-hmm. So it brings that king of cheese, salty wonderland to this dish. And then they put it in a beef broth and it's amazingly naughty. Yeah, I like, loved it. It, once again, just a super comfort food that you can't stop eating. Um, 
And then, of course, Rochelle from uh, Travel Bite, she tried the one with the sage and butter as well, which, you know, two different versions of how you can have it and just delicious either way. That's the summer version. So we had the hearty winter version, even though we were there in summer. Because we wanted to try the original classic. And yes, there's a slightly lighter version without the broth with just butter and sage. And it's also very, very tasty. So yeah, if you're looking for a dish that's a little bit off the usual tourist agenda, this is definitely the one that locals are going to love. Okay, it's time to jump on to what became probably our number one must-try dish from Bologna. And it's definitely not something you are likely to have heard of outside of the region. So yes, as a tourist to the city, you are probably going to want to try the most famous dishes first, like the tagliatelle ragù and the tortellini. But this lesser-known dish, it really surprised us. So find some stomach space for it. It's called Gramigna alla Salsiccia. So this dish is made from tomatoes, onions, and sausage. And that's it. They're stewed together and they're mixed with a hollow tube pasta, which is sort of like a thinner, longer version of macaroni. And it's called gramigna. This incredibly simple dish creates a beautiful richness from the sausage that you just, you don't get as much of that richness if you're eating the ground beef in a bolognese ragu. No. Well, it's sausage meat rather than mint. So it's actually chunky bits of sausage meat in the dish. And I don't know, sausage has extra fat in it, has more flavor than just regular beef mints, in my opinion. Uh, It's fantastic. Of course, it's been heavily garnished with uh, Parmigiano Reggiano. (laughs) Of course. But the uh, Gramagna pasta is not very common around the world. You probably haven't ever seen it. I've never seen it outside of Italy. No, as you said, it's like a, it's like a skinnier version of macaroni. It's like macaroni's cousin went on a diet and got really tall and skinny. But then made me fat. (laughs) Then in turn made me fat. It is tasty. There's not a lot of information about how this pasta came about online because it's actually a very uncommon pasta that you can't get elsewhere. And it's not something that they taught us how to make either. No, Mm. because it's a dried pasta that they cook in the restaurant. It's not a fresh pasta. We only did fresh pasta making classes. But what it lacks in history, it definitely makes up for in sheer flavor when it's mixed with this delicious sausage and just tomato and onions. It's so unbelievably simple. And yet it is, it's been my most favorite dish. Yeah, I think it, it just the flavor profile just sort of punched you in the face. And you're like, oh, yes, that's what I'm talking about. The version we had at Trattoria Montanara was exceptional. And you'll also find that this dish can be made slightly differently with cream and sausage rather than tomato. Both are really good, but the tomato version was my favorite. So make sure you actually check which one you're getting before you order because the name might be the same on the menu. So you've got to ask. We thought we were getting the cream version when they gave us the tomato-y version. And well, I mean, we were so pleasantly surprised when we actually tried the tomato-y version because it was phenomenal. But yeah, you need to just sort of double check. It was a fantastic surprise that I will not be forgetting. It's amazing. Now, of course, we are still not done with pasta. There are more pastas to try. And Bologna is home to one of the world's other most famous pasta dishes, lasagna. Or is it? When we visited Bologna, we heard the unexpected claim that Bologna invented the lasagna. Now, we had no idea that this was the case before we arrived, but locals are adamant. And it sort of makes sense as Bologna is very famous for their ragu. So we did some more frantic Googling and it turns out that the history of lasagna is way more complicated than we ever expected it to be. So we've devoted an entire separate episode to lasagna, which is coming in season two of The Dish in late 2018. If you just can't wait until then, though, the pre-release episode of that will be going up in our Patreon-only account on Podbean. Head to foodfuntravel.com slash extras, and you'll be redirected to the Patreon account where you can get early access to new episodes, bonus episodes, which won't be released at all to the public, and more for only $1.50 a month. Until then, it's essential to know that lasagna al forno is an important dish to try on your trip to Bologna. They make it with green spinach-infused lasagna sheets, ragu, a decadent amount of bechamel sauce, and of course, parmigiano-reggiano. So if you're seeing lasagna on every menu thinking that it just happens to be there because you're in Italy, this is an important dish to the Emilia-Romagna region specifically. But as for the full origin story of lasagna, you'll have to wait for our lasagna episode. And we found out during research, there is a lot of misinformation online in articles about this topic. So it's not as clear cut as some sources online seem to make it seem. There's a lot more to this story. Okay, so everything we have mentioned so far has either been an appetizer, an ingredient, or a primi piatti, which is 
first course, such as all the pastas. All the pastas are a first course. That is not a main course. That is not your entire meal. You are supposed to eat more. Yeah. So you go for your aperitivo, for your snack to get your belly ready to eat. And then you go for your first course, which is your pasta. And then, you know, you go for your second course. Well, actually, you go for your aperitivo. Then you go to the restaurant and have another appetizer. And then you have the first course, which is huge. Actually, if you speak to most Italians, no one ever eats all the courses. They're called that, but no one can ever sit down and eat a full plate of pasta and then go on to a main course. I think some people do. Well, I mean, (laughs) yeah, they do, but it's not a regular occurrence. These pasta dishes are not the main course, even though they contain more than enough calories to be considered a main course. The secondi piatti is the second or main course and mainly features a more protein-heavy sort of dish, so maybe fishes and meats, that sort of stuff. So you're not going to get another plate of pasta. Unless you're Meg, she might get another plate of pasta. I do love my pasta. But there's one dish specifically that is really bolognese. It's from Bologna. It's not from other parts of the region. And this is called Cotoletta alla Bolognese. Now we've got another clip with Andrea. So let's jump in so we can tell us a little bit more about this. Uh, So we've talked all about pasta, which is one of the most famous things. Everyone's coming here to eat pasta. But of course, there are other dishes from Bologna as well, not just pasta. So what do you think are the most important ones other people should try once they've had their fill of pasta on the second day or third day here? What should they eat? Well, we are a very meaty region. So apparently Bologna is not a place for a vegetarian. But actually, I can suggest a lot of uh, vegetarian dishes too. Uh, if you ask me about the, the landmarks of our cuisine, I would say absolutely start with the pasta. And then uh, maybe the cotoletta, the fried, uh, the fried meat, which is uh, something really strong and rich. Andrea is talking about the cotoletta alla bolognese, a veal cutlet coated in a mix of breadcrumbs. And once again, Parmigiano Reggiano. Hey, it's in everything. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. If you thought that Parmesan cheese was just for grating on your pasta at the end, you are wrong. It's in everything. It's part of the dishes, and that's why they taste so amazing. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I think it's just part of Emilia Romagna life. It's everything. I, I, they put it on everything. I'm pretty certain if you wake up in the morning and you're like, Mom, I don't want to go to school. I feel sick. She will just feed you some parmesan cheese and be like off you go you'll be fine now i'll take it i'll take it so yes your breaded veal cutlet is shallow fried in a pan with butter of course of course and then topped with slices of parma ham while still in the pan so that the parma ham cooks a little bit through to finish and although it's another really simple dish it makes use of those two such important ingredients the cheese and the ham so the cotoletta is relatively easy to find on menus throughout bologna it's literally on all the main menus because it is the second course. So it's on almost every menu as the second course. So you can have it if you get that far. If you get that far, you've got to try at least because, you know, tasty veal cutlet with ham, cheese, it's good. But another dish that Andrea wanted to reminisce about in our interview was something that's a little bit more of a home-cooked family feast rather than a restaurant meal. Also the boiled, the so-called bollito misto. It's a very Christmas kind of meat, kind of... Uh second course and it's part of our uh, of our tradition a lot because I remember uh, when I was a kid my my grandmother started to boil the meat when it was uh, like uh, 6 a.m she take uh, the broth out of the pan and then she cooked the tortellini with uh, with that broth so it was a full lunch but uh, all starting from the same uh, from the same pan it's really traditional too yeah Wow, but we just have to find a grandmother doing yeah. it. <laughs> Can you start a second business called Adopt a Grandma? And we'll just come and hang out with Italian grandmas all day. That sounds interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd make a lot of money helping tourists be matched with grandmas to cook for them. Also, grandmas are usually happy to see young people and yeah. interested in food. So getting a home-cooked meal in Italy is absolutely one of my bucket list goals, but it still hasn't happened. No, I don't know how we keep missing out on this. I mean, we've done plenty of cooking classes, which sort of gives you a bit of a taste, but actually going in to the home and having an Italian grandma cook us a feast, it has eluded us until this day. The dish that Andrea was talking about in that clip is bolito misto, which literally just means mixed boiled meats. 
doesn't sound as fancy when it's said in English, it does, does it? <laughs> but typically, this includes multiple cuts of beef, like oxtail, tongue, short ribs, and other pieces. Maybe the osso as well with Still the bone not marrow. Sounding that fantastic. <laughs> if you like beef, it sounds pretty fantastic. True. Um, but also chicken. How about that? That's uh, weird. Chicken and beef in the same dish. Uh, but recipes do, of course, vary. So the cuts that are used could depend on who's cooking. But the trick is that the beef is cooked first for quite a long time to soften it before the chicken is added. Ah. So you actually get this beef broth, which you can then use to make the tortellini broth. Mm -hmm. You take that out and then you add some water water, and you put the chicken in and then everything is boiled up together. Now, this is just a huge family meat platter, which is served with salsa verde and a salsa rosso on the side. Nothing like the Mexican ones. These are definitely Italian versions of a green and red salsa. And that's it. After all the carbs of the pasta, you just eat this massive plate of meat with some salsas on the side. You don't need anything else. Although they probably have bread as well, don't they? Of course they do. So after you've eaten all of this, what else should you eat for a nice little dessert? Probably nothing. <laughs> I was like, dessert? Are you crazy? Are you bonkers? There's no way I'm putting I don't... I barely – the only time we got dessert when we were in Italy was when we went out for gelato and we went out for gelato. <laughs> like we specifically went so we would have gelato. Yeah, it had to be separate because there's just no way. But for everyone else apart from us, instead of having your regular dessert and after all these carbs, why not have a dessert made of pasta? Oh, we saw this in the window. Yes, we are talking about tagliatelle cake. Believe it or not, Bologna has a cake that is made with tagliatelle. Because why not? Why not? Yeah. Uh, it's called torta di tagliatelle, which just means tagliatelle cake. Pretty simple, right? Or sometimes it's called torta ricciolina, as it might be made with the thicker ricciolina pasta rather than tagliatelle. Occasionally, it depends. Okay, we've got another clip with Andrea, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this dessert. It's a kind of a difficult recipe to make because uh, you need to caramelize the tagliatelle with uh, orange juice and then you put it uh, on a basis of uh, marzapane and then bake it and so it's a bit a little bit complex to make it uh, at home but you can find it in uh, a lot of bakeries in uh, old shops and also you can take it at home because it's bacon and it will last uh, a few days so it's a good uh, food souvenir to take home <laughs> yeah pasta for a main course and pasta for dessert amazing i think that uh, just bolognese could think about putting a pasta on a dessert <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> If you think about it, it's really crazy. So the tagliatelle cake has crispy golden strands of tagliatelle on top of a cake flavoured with almond or almond liqueur, or a bit of both. And the cake has its origin, actually, in the Renaissance period. This is an old cake. Mm. This isn't some new leftovers cake. I mean, cake it kind of does make with. sense with Bologna. Like, everything about Bologna screams Renaissance, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. It just exemplifies the Renaissance period still today when Even you go today. there you just you feel that Renaissance I felt underdressed in Bologna <laughs> yeah, yeah I should always have, yeah without my cod piece I basically shouldn't be there <laughs> you just look out of place all the time because <laughs> everyone else is wearing a cod piece of course they are just under their jeans this is important tourist information guys we're not joking everyone there is wearing a cod piece just go hire one from welcome Bologna it's in the town square <laughs> you can go and get your cod piece for five euro if you turn up without one the locals would be like, foreigner, foreigner. <laughs> They've all got them on. Trust me. Don't trust me. So, yes, this dessert has its history from the Renaissance. And the pasta is actually sometimes a little bit thinner than tagliatelle. But it has a very golden color because it's like fried up to be a little bit golden. And these strands are actually said to represent the hair of Lucrezia Borgia, who was the Duchess of Ferrara, which is north of Bologna, about half an hour on the train. From 1502 to 1519. Yeah, she had like really like curly kind of. She did. She had crazy curly hair. hair. Yeah. And sometimes curly, sometimes like just blonde. Depends on the pictures. I've seen a little bit of both. But normally she had sort of slightly curly hair, which is why the Ricciolina pasta actually has uh, little strips down the outside that look a bit like curls, where tagliatelle is just the golden element. I mean, all of these suggestions about what these foods are based on, they're, they're sort of. Oh, you Close know. to truth, but more Hairs about... Hairs and navels and whatnot. It's you know. a good story. It is. Whether it's actually true and whether anyone really invented food based on someone's hair, I don't know. But it's a great story. Everyone loves a story behind food, right? Yeah. So don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. So thanks again to our guest, Andrea, from Taste Bologna. You can find out more about taking one of his food tours on his website, tastebologna.net. Just jump on there. You can and book it. Go watch him on Somebody Feed Phil on the Venice 
episode, yeah. when they go to Modena, he's there. Yeah, in the Venice episode, they visit Modena. How random. And yeah, he's one of the guests who is being interviewed by Phil Rosenthal from Somebody Feed Phil. So jump on Netflix and watch that series. It's the season two. Uh, it's great. It's a great show. It's really fun. It's uplifting. Love it. Yep. Great show. But this is not quite the end of the episode. We talked about a lot of food. We've made it all the way through dessert. In fact, there is another dessert that we mentioned you should try, gelato, because Bologna is famous for having a gelato museum as well as- A gelato university. They have a gelato museum and a gelato university. The museum is at the university, I believe. Yeah. And so they are training the next generation of gelato makers. They're not messing about. Also, the machines that make the gelato that gets shipped all around the world is made in Emilia-Romagna, and they're very, very proud of those machines as well. Yeah, they are like the best machines in the world for making gelato and they're transported everywhere. So gelato is an essential dessert that you have to try in Bologna, but we're not talking about it in this episode because we're going to be doing a full episode, gelato versus ice cream. What's the difference? What's going on? Is gelato better? Is ice cream better? I don't know. It's tricky because I've had some great ice cream and I've had some great gelato. So I look forward to uh, hashing this one out with you later. Figure out what's going on with that. So we'll be back with that topic in the future. But finally tonight, after dessert, if you want to wash it all down with something spectacular that's not food, of course, some local wine. It's Italy, isn't it? Now, there's a specific local wine from this region that we love, but is not particularly internationally recognized as being a great wine. So let's talk about this. Lambrusco. What's going on? Why do we love it? Why do people from Emilia-Romagna love it? And why is it not something that everyone else loves? I don't understand. Actually, I do understand why Lombrusco has such a bad rap. Because until I went to Emilia-Romagna, I thought the same thing. It was like cheap booze that was like, I don't know, you get it for like... Fizzy piss. Yeah, it's crap. And... When we went to Emilia-Romagna and we tried Lambrusco, I'm pretty certain it was hesitantly. <laughs> Someone was like, you must try this. And we're like, ah. Really? Uh, it's fantastic there. Lambrusco is actually the name of an Italian red grape variety that grows like a weed. It's really robust, really strong grape. And there's actually 60 known varieties of that particular grape as well. One big head poncho grape, 60 varieties of similar grape, and that's how you end up with your, your different flavors. So the wine originates from only four zones in Emilia-Romagna and one in Lombardy. And that's it. That's where Lombrusco comes from. It's another one of those protected products that if you get the grapes from anywhere else, it's not real Lombrusco. Exactly. Exactly. It has actually been used to produce wine for a seriously long time in that region. Actually, archaeological evidence suggests that it was being used to create wine back in the time of the Etruscans, uh, who were around Italy from about 800 to 264 BC. Wow. Crazy old, crazy wealthy society of people as well. Yeah. Uh, so that's actually, I did the maths. So they were making fizzy wine that long ago yes, in Italy. Yes, about uh, 2,800 and so years ago. Wow. They had, not, not necessarily, uh, well, they were using the grapes back then. So it was, I think it was actually the Romans that came along and they actually created a way to make it fizzy. They had this special process that they did and they did actually make fizzy wine. But that was the Romans. But at least the grapes have been used to make wine since about almost 3,000 years ago, which yeah. bonkers crazy. People have been liking wine for some time. so Exactly. Not surprisingly, they had wine. And, you know, no confusion with the name. The Romans called it Lambrusca. Uh, which is the word for wild vines, because it it just grew like crazy. You would see it everywhere along the edges of fields. So what happened? Because it was crazy popular. Everyone was drinking it all the way. These thousands of years, Lombrusco was a popular grape variety. It was a popular drink to have. Where did it crash and burn? Industrialization's my guess. Ah, there we go. Yeah, so it actually happened around about the 70s and 80s, surprisingly enough. Like, it was really popular, but then it became super popular in the United States in the 70s and 80s, and demand just grew. It grew and grew and grew, which meant they had to incorporate new industrial scale production to the point where actually it reached a high of over 13 million cases exported just to the USA alone in 1985. It's just that old tale of mass production equals crap quality. Yep. There was so much call for it. People were loving it and they just tried to 
throw as much of it out there into the world as they possibly can without giving it the love and attention that the grape deserves. And that's how we ended up with Crap Lambrusco. And they killed their brand. They did. They really did. But, you know, these days there's a lot of people who are making a really strong stand and trying to get Lambrusco back into the public eye. They've always been doing it in Italy. You've had your boutique winemakers that have been taking care of their grapes and making small batches and creating this beautiful Lambrusco, which is what we had when we were there. But they're also really much trying to introduce it back into the the world stage as well. So people can understand that Lambrusco is actually a really quality drink, even though it's cheaper. The reason why it's cheaper is because it just grows so easily. It's not a hard-to-produce grape. It's not hard to take care of. Like It just does what it does, and you can make wine from it. So it's always going to be cheaper, but I I think really people shouldn't discard it because of how much it costs. I think you should go out there and give it a try. Yeah, because the stuff we were getting in Italy, this is not some light, fizzy piss. This really is. It's dark and rich and beautiful, and when it's chilled and it's a hot day in Italy, and you have a your aperitivo, it's sensational. It's perfect. So to this day, there's been a lot of boutique wineries that have taken the grapes. And so you can get so many different varieties. You can get your seco, which is your dry. You can get uh, your off-dry sweet. You can get your dolce, which is your very, very sweet wines. So there really is a Lombrusco out there for everyone. No matter what your taste palette happens to be, you should be able to find a Lambrusco to suit it. And we just, the main thing that I want to get out about Lambrusco is if you try a bottle and you don't really like it, just give it another go. You tried the wrong bottle. You tried the wrong bottle. Because great ones. Because if you have a bottle of red wine and you're a red wine drinker and you don't really like it, you'll still drink another bottle of wine. Like if you have a beer, a craft beer, and you don't really like it, you're like, well, I just didn't really like that one, but I'm still going to drink beer, right? Be the same with Lambrusco. Give it time and you will actually find one that suits your taste palette perfectly. And it will, as you said before, on a hot summer's day in Italy when you're sitting there having your aperitivo, as the sun's going down, it's perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay, that's it. We've talked about lots of different foods. Pasta, of course, one of the major things that you're going to eat when you're a Bologna. And Lambrusco. Don't skip it. Do it. You've got to have Lambrusco. In fact, in the 1900s, farm workers were given a bottle of it every day because it was considered as an important uh, addition to their nutrition, just as important as bread was. It's definitely an important addition to your soul. I feel like it makes you feel better about life if you get Lambrusco every day. I think I do. I definitely feel better about life with Lambrusco in it. On that note, Let's finish this episode. We are done with Bologna food for now wow, at least. Wow, that was epic. We still have to go back into all of their autumn stuff. Like we, we haven't gone into truffles hardcore and we haven't gone into like all of their winter dishes. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot more to do with Emilia Romagna and just Italy in general. Yeah, Italy has so much fantastic food. Emilia Romagna is definitely one of the best food regions of the country as well, though you could say that about almost anywhere in Italy. They're it's all good. great food regions. So, yes, that's it for this Bologna podcast. Uh, if you jump onto our full article at foofuntravel.com slash Bologna podcast, you will find a lot more dishes that we did not talk about, a lot more pastas that we did not talk about because there's so many. There's so many. They make out the dough and none of the dough is wasted. So every single bit of the dough is turned into some form of pasta. Even the leftover little bits, they chop it up and they throw it in a soup. Yep. It's all used. Like everything gets used. And it all has a name and so that I can't remember. They also have the cake. <laughs> Leftover tagliatelle goes on the cake because mm. you can refry the old tagliatelle and put it on the cake. That's what's happening. So, yes, that's the end of the Bologna podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we, of course, will be back with more food, fun, travel, the dish content, talking about more amazing destinations in the next season. So, join us for season two. This is the end of season one. Oh, my God. We hit the end of season one. Yeah. Last episode of season one, guys. And we really hope to see you again for season two because we're going to have so many more food destinations coming up. We're looking at Romania. Uh, we're going to be talking, of course, about the history of Tagliatelle Ragu. So, if you love this episode and you go to Bologna, you're going to want to hear about the real history of the, the crazy world that spaghetti bolognese became. Like, where did it come from and why is it that? We're going to talk about the actual history. And, of course, uh, lots of other things. I think we're going to Cuba in season two as well. Yes, Cuba was a crazy little place to explore. But Can you find good Cuban cuisine? We were well, told no, so let's, let's find out. And also in season two, ice cream versus gelato. 
Oh, it's going it's to be an epic battle, isn't it? Battle Royale of epic proportions. Yes. So that's it. Please make sure you subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you listen. Podbean as well. That's our main host. So if you are not using Podbean already and you're looking for somewhere to listen to your podcast on. I love on, Podbean. We love Podbean. That's what we use for listening ourselves and for hosting our podcast. But you can get us anywhere across the internet and make sure you leave a five-star review because five-star reviews and subscribing to our channel is what puts us up the ratings. If you don't do those two things, then our podcast sits down the bottom. We don't get more listeners. And then we go like, ah, we're not going to make any more episodes because no one's listened to our show. Don't keep us all to yourself. Share it. Share it with your friends and everybody. Let everybody know that, that you like what we're doing. And we hope that you like what we're doing. And, and do that by giving us a five-star review uh, wherever you happen to listen to this podcast. Yep. And the more listeners we get, the more shows we will make. And the more time we will commit to podcasting rather than our regular blog work, yes. especially if you become a patron. And all you need to do to do that is jump to foodfundtravel.com slash extras. That will take you to our Podbean page where you can send us some money every month from as little as $1.50 a month. You can keep this show on the road, quite literally, because we are going to these destinations, eating these foods and talking about them. And also you're going to get some bonuses, right? Absolutely. We're doing a whole bunch of mini episodes that, you know, that we're not featuring on the main podcast. So you Such can... as balsamic vinegar we mentioned earlier. Exactly. And the history of that's actually really interesting. So I can't wait to throw that bonus episode into the Patreon mix. Yeah. So becoming a patron, you get a whole bunch of extras that just being a regular listener don't get the pleasure of having. So please jump in there if you ever want to buy us a beer or buy us a drink or uh, a glass of Lambrusco. <laughs> you know, please just jump in there and support us because that's going to help us stay on the road and help us eating these dishes because we like doing this. It's it's really something that we enjoy doing and we hope you guys support us in, you know, by listening to us and enjoying what we do. And also if you do become a patron, as we said this is the end of season 1 right now. You will get early access to some of the new episodes from season two before the season starts getting released. So you're going to get to listen to new episodes before anybody else. Really good reason to jump in there. And for $1.50 a month, you'll be there ready the second they come out. So do it, do it, do it. Okay, signing off from season one. Thanks again for joining us. This is Tomo. This is Maggie. Oh, yeah. We'll catch you for season two of The Dish in a few months' time. I'm already hungry. Oh, yeah. Or maybe not in a few months' time because I don't know when you're listening to this. Maybe it's already out. Check your feed. Do it. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time. <laughs>